Well, I'm sure Father Greenwell has inspired you greatly by his conferences, and uh, I'm very grateful to him for the time he uh, put into the retreat. He uh, had to drive all the way back from Cleveland uh, that very day to be here for his evening conference after a funeral there, and now we just find out that another gentleman in Cleveland died, uh, William Marvin, so please keep him in your prayers as well. We were talking here, at least I was talking earlier, about adoration being the highest purpose of prayer and the highest purpose of sacrifice. And we realize that in our prayers and our sacrifices, we, we should keep in mind that what we're doing is giving. We're giving God of ourselves, making a return to him of the blessings that he's given to us. He invests those blessings in us. He wants them to work with them and to bring them for, to fruition. So often our Lord talks about bearing fruit, bearing fruit, right? talks about the barren fig tree, but he talks about also the bearing fruit a 60, a hundredfold. He talks about uh, the, the servants who are called in by the master and given the, the money to hold for him while he goes on a journey and comes back. He expects there to be increase. God gives us the opportunity to be, uh, as it were, ministers of that increase of, the, of his goods the good things of the bounty of God. And so when we go to Mass, we should go to Mass with the intention of giving. We should go to the Mass with the intention, I am giving to God what I can. You know, even, even ordinary people, I mean, even, even sinners on earth appreciate when we give them uh, the two most important things we have to give, our time, our attention, our affection. Even great sinners can appreciate these things. How much more so, Almighty God, when we give him these most important things, our time, our attention, and our affection. Because this is really giving of ourselves. And that's what we need to do when we attend Mass. Now, I had wanted to talk to you tonight about, more about the Sacred Heart and more about attending Mass, but I decided that I'll, I'll finish the retreat tomorrow with that and also ans answer the questions as well as I can during tomorrow's last conference. But tonight, I'm afraid it'll go very long if I actually include that as part of this conference because I told you that I would be talking about something else. And that something else is not only the future, it's not only the past, but it is the future. Can I, can I show you the past? Well, yes, we look at sacred scripture. And you read on the book of Genesis. You read the book of Exodus and so on. You see there the past. But in that past, we also see the future. So tonight, tonight I want to talk about that. How the past is the future. The future of the human race. We're going to take a look at what that future is. Now, whether that future is a year from now, 10 years from now, a thousand years from now, I don't know, but it is the future. It is exactly the future. It's what is going to happen. You know, when 
Satan fell, when Lucifer fell and became Satan, when he changed from the light bearer until the bearer of darkness, the accuser, the condemner. And be, that is Satan. <clears throat> he craves adoration because his purpose in rebelling was to assert his own deity, that he could be independent of his creator that he was beautiful enough, powerful enough, intelligent enough, he didn't need God. He certainly did not need God at the expense of humiliating himself. All God was asking him to do was humble himself, but he took that as a form of humiliation. <clears throat> to this day, Satan still craves adoration. Do we give it to him? Yes, we do, whenever we sin. Whenever we, especially when we get mortal sin, we give him, as he understands it, adoration. Because we are, in a sense, proclaiming him our Lord because we obey him. And if you say, well, the one who is my Lord is the one whom I obey, then if we obey him and his temptation, then we are saying, implicitly at least, that he is our Lord. He, that's the way he takes it in his pride. He takes mortal sin as a form of adoration. And if you look back in pagan civilizations, you see that's what they offered. That's what they offered their devil gods. They offered them sins. They offered them perversions. They what would you offer a devil in adoration? You'd offer him sin and perversion. And that's what they did. So we have to understand the significance of sin in the eyes of Satan. And we can't forget either the temptation that Satan inflicted on our Lord. Remember, Satan first appealed to our Lord's hunger after he'd been fasting in the desert for 40 days. And then he took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and appealed to his sense of trust in his father. The father said he will cast, send his angels to keep you from dashing your foot against a stone. So let's see what happens. And then, of course, Satan took our Lord up to a high mountain apart sometimes referred to as Mount Tibidabo, in Latin means, I will give to you. Because Satan said to our Lord, I will give to you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. If falling down, you will adore me. Now Satan was really getting to the point. He was really getting to the point there. That's what he wanted. St. Matthew chapter 4, verse 9. That's what he wants. And he said to him, All these will I give thee, if falling down thou wilt adore me. Now, of course, you know our Lord's response, Be gone, be gone, Satan. For it is written, The Lord thy God alone shalt thou adore, in him only shall you serve. Shalt thou serve. So that was our Lord's answer, which should be our answer every time as well. But we see the same mentality of this demon long before the Son of God came into the world. We see it expressed to Eve. Because the, the demon understood, or the, the devil understands, understands what makes us tick, in a sense that he knows we, although we're vastly inferior to him by nature, we still have the intellectual ability to know what is true, the will to love what is good, and, of course, the capacity to enjoy and thrill at what is beautiful. 
And so the devil does understand, even though our nature is so inferior to his own, he understands how we think. And so he crafts his temptation to fit us because he knows there's pride. He knows the pride that got him. So he knows how to approach us. So when he came to Eve, he didn't convince her that she was hungry. Unlike our Lord, she hadn't been fasting in the desert for 40 days. Satan didn't slither up to her and say, Eve, you must be starving. No. He didn't take her to the top of the tree and say, "Throw, jump down to see if God will catch you. No, no. The temptation got to the point with her. The devil had to kind of spar a little bit with our lords. We were very wary of approaching our Lord. But with Eve, he just went right to the point. The temptation to Eve, you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. Okay. Here's what it says from Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Okay. Actually, this is actually, uh, I'm going to start with the command of God from chapter 2 of Genesis, 2.16. And he, God, commanded him, Adam, saying, Of every tree of paradise thou shalt eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. For in what day soever thou shalt eat of it, thou shalt die the death. And the Lord God said, It is not good for him to, for man to be alone. Let us make him a help like unto himself. And the Lord God, having formed out of the ground all the beasts of the earth and all the fowls of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. For whatsoever Adam called any living creature, that same is its name. And Adam called all the beasts by their names, and all the fowls of the air, and all the cattle of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper like himself. Now, the ability to name, to assign a name, was considered to be something of a, of a, the power of a, of a lord and master. So in giving these names, as though Adam was constituted as the lord and master of these beasts. And even, uh, into the Jewish, Jewish religion, the, the having a name of a spirit was thought to give you power power to summon, and even power to command. Even today, in Catholic exorcisms, the first thing an exorcist is instructed to do is to demand that this evil-possessing spirit reveal its name. Because that compels it to comply. That's the first thing it has to be compelled to comply with, to reveal its name. So when Adam gave names... This indicated his stature as being, in a sense, being the Lord here on this earth, that God had constituted him as master of all of a, the rest of God's creation. And then we go on to read about our Lord casting a deep sleep over Adam and taking Eve from his side. And then Adam calling her woman because she came from man. Now we go to the next chapter of Genesis, chapter 3. Verse 1, now the serpent was more subtle than any of the beasts of the earth which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, why hath God commanded you that you should not eat of every tree of paradise? And the woman answered him, saying, of the fruit of the trees that are in paradise we do eat, 
But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of paradise, God hath commanded us that we should not eat, and that we should not touch it, lest perhaps we die. And the serpent said to the woman, No, you shall not die the death. For God doth know that in what day soever thou shalt eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good to eat, and fair to the eyes, and delightful to behold. And she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave to her husband, who did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and when they perceived themselves to be naked, they made aprons of themselves of fig leaves. Their eyes were opened. Now they saw. What did they see? Good and evil. Even as the serpent said, you see. Even as the serpent said. Notice the word knowledge, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the serpent's words to Eve, For God doth know that in what day soever you shall eat thereof, your eye shall be opened, and you shall be as God, you shall know good and evil. But this is the very basis of what we know, what the world knows as Gnosticism. Gnosticism, as I mentioned before, Gamma Nu, well, G-N-O-S-T-I-S. Gnosticism from the Greek for knowledge. Now, there's an occult knowledge called Gnosis, and Gnosticism is the practice of that, in a sense, making a religion of it, a practice. And this is the past, but it is also the future. And it's important for us to understand what this is because we are going to see that this is the temptation that remains here in the world. It remains in every human soul. The temptation that was delivered to Eve by the serpent long ago echoes, continue to resound, continues to resound throughout the world, throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, and it will resound till the end of time and it will actually come to dominate the world at the end of time. And that will be the one world religion under the mastery of the Antichrist. It will be Gnosticism. Make no mistake about it. That's exactly what it will be. That's what we see actually in its genesis right before us now. It's all too clear. And we see it manifesting itself in many ways, because Gnosticism has many guises, many variants. But we see it now in modernism. We see it now in Mormonism. We see it in many places. And I think it's important for us to recognize it, understand it. So that temptation from the Garden of Eden continues throughout history. The mystery of the Illuminati, the enlightened ones, is Gnosticism. They are the Gnostics of our own day. They are the enlightened ones. They've been enlightened with the knowledge. The knowledge of what? Precisely the knowledge that came from the serpent long ago. 
that we are gods, that we are gods, that man is God. And all he has to do is believe it. All he has to do is know that fact, that he is God. Now, can we learn about Gnosticism today? I mean, we think about Gnosticism as being some old creed, maybe some stuffy old creed, going back hundreds of years. I mean, after all, we think of manas that we taught the Manichaean religion that held St. Augustine for so long, and St. Augustine was trying to find out how there could be both good and evil in the world. St. Augustine trying to understand the origin of evil, how there could be evil in a world created by a good God. It's the same problem pointed out by St. Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s when he asked the question, on Deus sit, whether God exists. And he gives two points. He says, no, it's clear that God does not exist. And one of the points he makes, because the world is sufficient to explain itself, doesn't need a God to create it. The second point he makes is that it's clear there is no God because if a good God created the world, there would not be evil in the world. St. Thomas Aquinas, 800 plus years ago, the same problems that are raised by atheists today, he saw them, he answered them long ago. But this is the question that arises so often in the minds of people today. How, come, how is there evil? Now, what I'm going to do is uh, read to you, probably read practically the entire text because I went through it highlighting what I thought should be said, and it turns out that it's about 90% of the actual text. So I figured, well, maybe I should just read to you directly what we find as far as a summary of Gnosticism. And this is on a website called the Gnosis, the Gnosis.com or Gnosis.com. This is from the Gnosis Archive. And it's from a Gnostic bishop. And I find that this is very, very accurate. Now I've explained Gnosticism to our students. And I find that everything I explained is here, but it's explained in a very good way. I'm not, it's a very bad message explained in a very good way. It's very clear. So please be patient with me while I read this to you because I think it gives you a, an excellent understanding of what Gnosis is. <clears throat> Gnosis is the teaching based on, on Gnosis. Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the teaching based on Gnosis. The knowledge of transcendence arrived at by way of interior intuitive means. Although Gnosticism thus rests on personal religious experience, it is a mistake to assume all such experience results in Gnostic recognitions. It is nearer the truth to say that Gnosticism expresses a specific religious experience, an experience that does not lend itself to the language of theology or philosophy, but which is instead closely affinitized to and expresses itself through the medium of myth. The term myth should not here be taken to mean stories that are not true, but rather 
The truths embodied in these myths are of a different order from the dogmas of theology or the statements of philosophy. <clears throat> now, for someone who is conversant with modernism, as it is explained by St. Pius X in his encyclical of 1907, Vashendi Dominici Gregis, someone conversant with the nature of modernism will hear that paragraph that I just read and immediately make the connection. Realize religious experience that cannot really be adequately expressed in philosophy or theology. It's a personal religious experience. But that's what modernism is. And you begin to get the point that we're finding Gnosticism rearing its ugly head in modernism. That's what we're dealing with now. And as I continue reading, you're going to see this connection more and more clearly. In the following summary, we will attempt to encapsulate in prose what the Gnostic myths express in their distinctively poetic and imaginative language. So he's going to tell you in plain language what Gnosticism is. So he starts with the cosmos. The cosmos, or cosmos in Greek means the universe, basically, the world or the universe. All religious traditions acknowledge that the world is imperfect. Where they differ is in the explanations which they offer to account for this imperfection and in what they suggest might be done about it. Gnostics have their own, perhaps quite startling, view of these matters. They hold that the world is flawed because it was created in a flawed manner. Like Buddhism, Gnosticism begins with the fundamental recognition that earthly life is filled with suffering. In order to nourish themselves, all forms of life consume each other, thereby visiting pain, fear, and death upon one another. Even herbivorous animals live by destroying the life of plants. In addition, so-called natural catastrophes, earthquakes, floods, fires, drought, volcanic eruptions, bring further suffering and death in their wake. Human beings, with their complex physiology and psychology, are aware not only of these painful features of earthly existence, they also suffer from the frequent recognition that they are strangers living in a world that is flawed and absurd. Many religions advocate that humans are to be blamed for the imperfections of the world. Supporting this view, they interpret the Genesis myth as declaring that transgressions committed by the first human pair brought about a fall of creation, resulting in the present corrupt state of the world. Gnostics respond that this interpretation of the myth is false. The blame for the world's failings lies not with humans, but with the Creator. Since especially in the monotheistic religions, the Creator is God, this Gnostic position appears blasphemous and is often viewed with dismay even by non-believers. Ways of evading the recognition of the flawed creation and its flawed creator have been devised over and over, but none of these arguments have impressed the Gnostics. The ancient Greeks, especially the Platonists, advised people to look to the harmony of the universe so that by venerating its grandeur they might forget their immediate afflictions. But since this harmony still contains the cruel flaws, 
forlornness and alienation of existence, this advice is considered of little value by Gnostics. Nor is the Eastern idea of karma regarded by Gnostics as an adequate explanation of creations, imperfections, and suffering. Karma, at best, can only explain how the chain of suffering and imperfection works. It does not inform us, in the first place, why such a sorrowful and malign system should exist. Once the initial shock of the unusual or blasphemous nature of the Gnostic explanation for suffering and imperfection of the world wears off, one may begin to recognize that it is, in fact, the most sensible of all explanations. To appreciate it fully, however, a familiarity with the Gnostic concept of the Godhead is required, both in its original essence as the true God and in its debased manifestation of the false or creator God. The Gnostic God, this is under the, the heading of deity now, the Gnostic God concept is more subtle than that of most religions. In its way, it unites and reconciles the recognitions of monotheism and polytheism, as well as of theism, deism, and pantheism. In other words, a little aside here, notice this Gnostic bishop is telling us that Gnosticism actually reconciles these contradictory systems in itself, as though somehow it contains within itself a universality that applies to all, showing the falsehoods of them all, but also having some common thread throughout them all. So we're going to see the idea that it, it really is a candidate or the candidate for the universal religion of mankind. Reconciling monotheism, polytheism, theism, deism, and pantheism, all in itself. In the Gnostic view, there is a true, ultimate, and transcendent God who is beyond all created universes and who never created anything in the sense in which the word create is ordinarily understood. While this true God did not fashion or create anything, he or it emanated or brought forth from within himself the substance of all there is in all the worlds, visible and invisible. Now, of course, a little aside might be necessary here. Going back to the pagan philosophers hundreds of years before our Lord, there was the question of emanation from what they considered to be homonos, the one. And all creation came from him, but it wasn't created. It was almost as though the, the one overflowed and then spread sort of like a stain. Imagine, imagine that. Imagine a stain falling on some kind of fabric, okay? Something... Uh, that, that causes a stain. And then from that stain, it spreads out and becomes weaker and weaker and weaker as it spreads farther and farther. And you kind of have a visual representation of this idea of emanation. Now, let's say you drop grape juice on a piece of fabric. Well, you see it, the stain spread and spread and spread. And wherever the stain spreads, it is all grape juice, but it's thinner and thinner and thinner as it goes. And that's the idea of what happened with Homonos. By the way, the, the name Allah for the deity 
is the one. Curiously, what? Curious, the one. And the Greeks of old talked about homonos, the one. And uh, we know that the, peg, the Islamic philosophers Avicenna and Averroes were very familiar with the philosophy of Saint, uh, the philosophy of Aristotle, the Greek philosopher. They knew his teaching and they corrupted it. That's why in the West there was a real antipathy for Aristotelian philosophy until St. Thomas Aquinas was able to show that the Islamics had corrupted, Saint, uh, corrupted Aristotle's teaching and misrepresented it. And when the people in the West, the Catholics in the West, saw the true teaching of Aristotle, they could see that it was not opposed to Catholicism. But in this point, of course, the philosopher did not understand the nature of creation. His human intellect took him only to homonos. It could not take him to know a knowing and loving God who had to reveal himself to us. In any case, this is the concept of the Gnostic, the Gnostic origin of the universe. This is how the Gnostics explain it is an emanation from the supreme deity who never created, but it's as though he spreads out. It, the, the deity emanated or brought forth from him within himself, the substance of all there is in all the worlds, visible and invisible. In a certain sense, it may therefore be true to say that all is God. For all consists of the substance of God. By the same token, it must also be recognized that many portions of the original divine essence have been projected so far from their source that they underwent unwholesome changes in the process. To worship the cosmos or nature or embodied creatures is thus tantamount to worshiping alienated and corrupt portions of the emanated divine essence. The basic Gnostic myth has many variations. But all of these refer to eons, A-E-O-N-S, eons, intermediate deific beings who exist between the ultimate true God and ourselves. They, together with the true God, comprise the realm of fullness or the pleroma, basically a caric caricature of what we would understand as heaven. But it's not really heaven in the sense that we know it to be. The plerima, wherein the potency of divinity operates fully, the fullness stands in contrast to our existential state, which in comparison may be called emptiness. One of the aeonial beings who bears the name Sophia or wisdom is of great importance in the Gnostic worldview. In the course of her journeyings, Sophia came to emanate from her own being a flawed consciousness, a being who became the creator of the material and psychic cosmos, 
all of which he created in the image of his own flaw. That's the creator. That's the creator God. That's what they say we worship as the true God is this being that is flawed, that emanated from Sophia, who emanated from the supreme God. And this flawed being here that we regard as God, he says, is unaware of his origins. He imagines himself to be the ultimate and absolute God. Since he took the already existing divine essence and fashioned it into various forms, he is also called the Demiurgos, the Demiurge. The Demiurge is like half-work or half-maker. There is an authentic half, a true deific component within creation. And so the Demiurge emanated us. We emanated from the Demiurge, who emanated from the Eon, Sophia, who emanated from the true God. And in this creation, like the Demiurge itself, there is a mixture of the deific, the divine, and the corrupt. But the Demiurge and his servants, who are known as the Archons, the Archons, they are the rulers of this world. His cosmic minions, he calls them. They are the fallen. And in fact, they are kind of the, the evil counterpart of the eons. You know, the eons serving the true God who is beyond all and unknowable, unknowable. And you have the Archons, who are the servants of this Demiurge creator. Human nature mirrors the duality found in the world. In part, it was made by the false creator, and in part, it consists of the light of the true God. Humankind contains a perishable physical and psychic component, as well as a spiritual component which is a fragment of the divine essence. This latter part is often symbolically referred to as the divine spark. The recognition of this dual nature of the world and the human being has earned the Gnostic tradition the epithet of dualist, two elements. There is within us the corrupt physical and psychic, and there is the divine spark, the pneumatic spiritual. Humans are generally ignorant of the divine spark resident within them. This ignorance is fostered in human nature by the influence of the false creator and his archons, who together are intent upon keeping men and women ignorant of their true nature and destiny. Anything that causes us to remain attached to earthly things serves to keep us in enslavement to these lower cosmic rulers. Death releases the divine spark from its lowly prison. But if there has not been a substantial work of gnosis undertaken by the soul prior to death, it becomes likely that the divine spark will be hurled back into and then re-embodied within the pangs and slavery of the physical world. Not all humans are spiritual, that is the pneumatics, 
from the pneuma, meaning spirit, that's the Greek word for spirit, and thus ready for gnosis and liberation. Some human beings are earthbound and materialistic. These are called the heletics, from hele, the Greek for matter, who recognize only the physical reality. Others, other human beings, live largely in their psyche. And such people usually mistake the demiurge for the true God and have little or no awareness of the spiritual world behind, beyond matter and mind. Now, you and I, to a Gnostic, would be considered to be psychics, as it were. We live in the psychic world. We are not aware of the divine spark within us, that we are part God. Only the Gnostic knows this. Only the pneumatics know this, the spiritual ones. In the course, in the course of history, humans progress from materialistic, sensate slavery by way of ethical religiosity that's us, to spiritual freedom and liberating gnosis. As the scholar G. Quispell wrote, the world spirit in exile must go through the inferno of matter and the purgatory of morals to arrive at the spiritual paradise. This kind of evolution of consciousness was envisioned by the Gnostics long before the concept of evolution was known. And now under the, the heading of salvation. Evolutionary forces alone are insufficient, however, to bring about spiritual freedom. Humans are caught in a predicament consisting of physical existence combined with ignorance of their true origins, their essential nature, and their ultimate destiny. To be liberated from this predicament, human beings require help, although they must also contribute by their own efforts. From earliest times, messengers of the light have come forth from the true God in order to assist humans in their quest for gnosis. Only a few of these salvific figures are mentioned in Gnostic scripture. Some of the most important are Seth, the third son of Adam, Jesus, and the prophet Mani. He is the one who started the belief system called Manichaeism. The majority of Gnostics always looked to Jesus as the principal savior figure, the Soter. Gnostics do not look to salvation from sin, original or other, but rather from the ignorance of which sin is a consequence. Therefore, Morality is not a savior. It's not to be saving us. Commandments are not helpful. It is knowledge. We must know something. Knowledge is the liberator. Knowledge is the savior. Ignorance, whereby is meant ignorance of spiritual realities, is dispelled only by gnosis. And the decisive revelation of gnosis is brought by the messengers of light, especially by Christ, the Logos of the true God. It is not by his suffering and death, but by his life of teaching and his establishing of mysteries that Christ has performed his work of salvation. The Gnostic concept of salvation, like other Gnostic concepts, is a subtle one. On the one hand, Gnostic salvation may easily be mistaken for an unmediated individual experience, a sort of spiritual do-it-yourself project 
Gnostics hold that the potential for gnosis and thus of salvation is present in every man and woman and that salvation is not vicarious but individual. At the same time, they also acknowledge that gnosis and salvation can be indeed, must be stimulated and facilitated in order to effectively arise within consciousness. This stimulation is supplied by the messengers of light, of whom Jesus is one, according to their system. The messengers of light who, in addition to their teachings, establish salvific mysteries or sacraments, which can be administered by apostles of the messengers and their successors. You see how this is a mockery of Catholicism, really, a parody, as it were, of Catholicism that is worthy of, of the devil. One needs also remember that knowledge of our true nature, as well as other associated realizations, are withheld from us by our very condition of earthly existence. The true God of transcendence is unknown in this world. In fact, he is often called the unknown father. Uh, again, those of you familiar with St. Pius X's writing on modernism would recognize this whole idea of the unknowable, that God is the unknowable, but somehow we can experience him. And that experience can scarcely be expressed in words of philosophy or theology or any doctrine. But anyway, read, read the encyclical Pashendi, you'll see what I mean. It is thus obvious that revelation from on high is needed to bring about salvation. The indwelling spark must be awakened from its terrestrial slumber by the saving knowledge that comes from without. And now in terms of conduct and morality, if the words ethics or morality are taken to mean a system of rules, then Gnosticism is opposed to them both. Such systems usually originate with the demiurge, Interesting, he attributes systems of morality and ethics to the false god, creator. Such systems usually originate with the demiurge and are covertly designed to serve his purposes. If, on the other hand, morality is said to consist of an inner integrity arising from the illumination of the indwelling spark, then the Gnostic will embrace this spiritually informed existential ethic as ideal. To the Gnostic, commandments and rules are not salvific. They are not substantially conducive to salvation. Compare that with the words of our Lord over and over again, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. They are not substantially conducive to salvation. Rules of conduct may serve numerous ends, including the structuring of an ordered and peaceful society and the maintenance of harmonious relations within social groups. Rules, however, are not relevant to salvation. That is brought about only by gnosis, the knowledge. Morality, therefore, needs to be viewed primarily in temporal and secular terms. It is ever subject to changes and modifications in accordance with the spiritual development of the individual. Again, pure modernism. Pure modernism. Morality changes with the circumstances. As noted in the discussion above, heletic materialists usually have little interest in morality. 
while psychic disciplinarians often grant to it a great importance. In contrast, pneumatic spiritual persons, these are the Gnostics, are generally more concerned with other higher matters. Different historical periods also require variant attitudes regarding human conduct. Thus, both the Manichaean and Cathar Gnostic movements, the Manichaean teachings of the early centuries, well, about the time of Christ, of Manes, as I say, St. Augustine fell into that trap for a while, and the Cathars were the Albigensians of the 1200s in southern France, also Gnostics. And he refers to them, he says, both the Manichaean and the Cathar Gnostic movements, which functioned in times where purity of conduct was regarded as an issue of high importance, responded in kind. The present period of Western culture, perhaps, resembles in more ways than that of 2nd and 3rd century Alexandria. It seems, therefore, appropriate that Gnostics in our age adopt the attitudes of classical Alexandrian Gnosticism, wherein matters of conduct and morality were largely left to the insight of the individual. Gnosticism embraces numerous general attitudes towards life. It encourages non-attachment and non-conformity to the world, of being in the world but not of the world, to quote scripture, sacred scripture, a lack of egotism and a respect for the freedom and dignity of other beings. Nonetheless, it appertains to the intuition and wisdom of every individual Gnostic to distill from these principles individual guidelines for their own personal application. And now under, this, under the heading of destiny here. We're actually approaching the end of this treatise here, so I hope you can stay with me a little bit longer here. And the question of destiny. Notice again, he refers to the various lights of Gnosticism throughout century. Here he begins to, with Confucius. When Confucius was asked about death, he replied, why do you ask me about death when you do not know how to live? This answer might easily have been given by a Gnostic. To a similar question posed in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, Jesus answered that human beings must come by gnosis to know the ineffable divine reality from whence they have originated and whither they will return. This is one of those false gospels that were produced during the apostolic times, attributed to an apostle trying to corrupt Christianity. Recall in the book of the Apocalypse, we read about a woman crying out in giving birth, a woman giving birth. And the dragon was waiting there to devour the child when it was born. The woman had 12 stars over her head, the moon beneath her feet. Representative of Our Lady. And the dragon wanted to devour the child who was born, but the woman was taken away. Right? Some have seen in that an image of Gnosticism, as though it was the dragon that was trying to devour the infant church in its maw and twist the teaching of Christ the way that this man is twisting it to say that Christ's teaching had to do with us 
receiving the knowledge of our inner spark of divinity. This is the teaching of these Gnostic Gospels. The Gospel of Thomas is one of them. Death does not automatically bring about liberation from bondage in the realms of the Demiurge. Those who have not attained to a liberating gnosis while they were in embodiment may become trapped in existence once more. It is quite likely that this might occur by way of the cycle of rebirths. Gnosticism does not emphasize the doctrine of reincarnation prominently, but it is implicitly understood in most Gnostic teachings that those who have not made effective contact, contact with their transcendental origins while they were in embodiment would have to return into the sorrowful condition of earthly life. In regard to salvation or the fate of the spirit and soul after death, one needs to be aware that help is available. Valentinus, another leading Gnostic, he calls him here the greatest of Gnostic teachers, taught that Christ and Sophia await the spiritual man, the pneumatic Gnostic, at the entrance of the Pleroma, and they help him to enter the bridal chamber of final reunion. Now, as I'm reading this also, any of you who are familiar with the teachings of Mormonism are going to relate. Any one of you who are familiar with the teachings of Mormonism can relate what I'm saying to the teachings of Joseph Smith. And at the end, I'm just going to, or toward the end, I'm going to just draw a connection there at the very basis of this whole system and the very basis of Joseph Smith's system of, modern, of Mormonism to show that they take their place from the same origins and basically follow the same pattern. In the fullness, oh, here it is here. Ptolemaeus, the disciple of Valentinus, taught that even those not of pneumatic status, the psychics, could be redeemed and live in a heaven world at the entrance of the Pleroma. They couldn't actually enter heaven, but they could get into kind of the antechamber. In the fullness of time, every spiritual being will receive gnosis and will be united with its higher self, the angelic twin thus becoming qualified to enter the Pleroma. None of this is possible, however, without earnest striving for the Gnosis, that is, the secret knowledge of our own divinity. And now he talks about the Gnosis and the Tsuke. And when he's talking about this, remember I said there was the Hule, the materialistic man. But then there's what he calls the Psychic, coming from the Tsuke, Greek meaning soul, and there are the Gnostics, the knowers, the illuminated ones, knowing their divinity, who are the pneumatics. Tehule means matter. Tsuke, the psychic, they're the ones who believe in soul. But the Gnostics are on the level of spirit, pneuma. And they are the ones who are ready to enter into the plerima, the fullness, or heaven. So here he talks about the gnosis and the psuche. That's us. That's where we are here. Those who believe in the soul and live according to the soul. He talks about the new scientific discipline of depth psychology has gained much prominence among the depth psychologists who have shown a pronounced and informed interest in Gnosticism. A place of signal distinction belongs to C.G. Jung. Jung was instrumental in calling attention to the Nag Hammadi Library of Gnostic Writings in the 1950s, 
because he perceived outstanding psychological relevance of Gnostic insights. A noted scholar of Gnostic, Gnosticism, G. Filaramo, write, wrote, Jung's reflections had long been immersed in the thought of ancient Gnostics, to such an extent that he considered them the virtual discoverers of depth psychology. Ancient Gnosis, albeit in its form of universal religion, you know I'm saying, in its form of universal religion, in a certain sense prefigured and at the same time helped to clarify the nature of Jungian spiritual therapy. Now, the reason why I thought it was important for you to hear this is because ground zero of the Novus Ordo, when they were first introducing these massive changes during the 1960s and 70s, there were two names that kept coming forth. Over and over again, they were being invoked. One was the name of Teilhard de Chardin. You heard that name. And the other one was of this psychologist, Carl Gustav Jung. He was one of their gurus of the Novus Ordo. He was referred to over and over and over again in the Novus Ordo writings. In the seminaries and out, he was considered to be a great teacher for the modernists. No wonder. He was an occultist. He believed that he was actually channeling one of the early Gnostics named Bardesanes. That's how deeply he was into this. He asked the question, is Gnosticism a religion or a psychology? He said it's actually both. You see, again, here you begin to see the future. You know? The future of this so-called scientific idea of deaf psychology as becoming religion. But then, if we are God, then of course psychology would be religion, wouldn't it? According to this, the human ego has lost contact with its ontological self. Here's something else that's kind of interesting. Something else that, that also is tied together with so many of these <coughs> concepts. For those who are familiar with Marxism, all of these Marxist leftist theory systems have to do with the alienation of man from himself. If you were to take these, these ideas and apply them in the realm of economics, you'd be coming up with the idea that man is alienated from himself because in the capitalist system, he is disassociated from his work. And he has to overcome that alienation by the destruction of the capitalist system, which is the enemy, which separates a man from his work. This is what the evil capitalists do. This is the distinction between the, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, de depriving the proletariat of the fruits of their labors, essentially stealing it from them. But that's another entire study here. But if you read Marx, over and over again, and Engels, you find this theory over and over again. Alienation of man, the alienation of man, we have to overcome the alienation of man. It goes right along with all of this. All of these systems are tied together. They're just applied in different ways. But the principles remain the same. 
Also, the myth of Sophia resembles closely the story of the human psyche that loses its connection, that's the human soul, that loses its connection with the collective unconsciousness and needs to be rescued by the self. Analogies of this sort exist in great profusion in the Gnostic systems. Gnostics have always held that divinity is imminent within the human spirit. Although it's not limited to the human spirit, it's there within us. We are part of it. The convergence of Gnostic religious teaching with psychological insight is thus quite understandable in terms of time-honored Gnostic principles. And here he draws his conclusion. Some writers make a distinction between Gnosis and Gnosticism. Such distinctions are both helpful and misleading. Gnosis is undoubtedly an experience, experience based not in concepts and precepts, but in the sensibility of the heart. Again, echoes, echoes here of Pashendi. The sense of the heart, it's something of the heart. Faith is something of the heart, he says. It's a religious sense of the heart. That's how St. Pius X describes it in Pashendi. Exactly the modernist concept of where this gnosis comes from. Gnosticism, on the other hand, is the worldview based on the experience of the gnosis. For this reason, in languages other than English, the word gnosis is often used to denote both the experience and the worldview at the same time. Die Gnosis in German and la gnos in French, la gnos. In a sense, there is no gnosis without Gnosticism, for the experience of gnosis, that is your own divinity, inevitably calls forth a worldview wherein it finds its place. The Gnostic worldview is experiential. It is based on a certain kind of spiritual experience. Read Pashendi of Gnosis. Therefore, it will not do to omit or to dilute various parts of the Gnostic worldview, for were one to do this, the worldview would no longer conform to experience. So he says, if you accept Gnosticism, you have to accept everything. You can't be leaving out something because it all stands together. Theology has been called an intellectual wrapping around the spiritual kernel of a religion. If this is true, then it is also true that most religions are being strangled and stifled by their wrappings. Gnosticism does not run this danger because its worldview is stated in myth rather than in theology. Now, my dear gentlemen here, this statement here should really shake you, you all. When you read this, when you hear this, you should be thinking, oh my goodness, this is what Francis says. This is exactly the message of Francis Jorge Maria Bergoglio. The theology is wrapped in, a, in an intellectual wrapping around the spiritual kernel of religion a religious experience. And then religions now are being strangled by this wrapping. It's right out of Pashendi that the modernists see that the doctrines are like the wrappings around this central experience, which is being basically throttled by these wrappings. That's why all these doctrines have to change. They have to give way. They have to allow the experience to develop and change. 
And this is exactly what Francis is saying. The doctrines have to be flexible to allow the spiritual experience of mankind to grow. So, in the Gnostic view, the worldview of the Gnostic is stated in myth rather than theology. And the story can change and develop, whereas doctrine can't. So this is why Gnosticism will grow and thrive and other religions that rely on doctrines, dogmas, fixed truths must die of their own making, of their own hand. Myths, including the Gnostic myths, may be interpreted in diverse ways. Transcendence, numinosity, as well as psychological archetypes, along with other elements, play a role in such interpretations. Still, such mythic statements tell of profound truths that will not be denied. Gnosticism can bring us such truths with a high authority, for it speaks with the voice of the highest part of the human, the spirit, the divine spark. Of this spirit, it has been said, it bloweth where it listeth. This, then, is the reason why the Gnostic worldview cannot be extirpated in spite of many centuries of persecution. The Gnostic worldview has always been timely, for it always responded best to the knowledge of the heart. That is Gnosis, and we might add that is also modernism. Yet today, its timeliness is increasing for the end of the second millennium has seen the radical deterioration of many ideologies which evaded the great questions and answers addressed by Gnosticism. Now this is actually the work of a man named Stephen A. Huller, H-O-E-L-L-E-R, which is very interesting because it's a German name. And in German, well, H-O-E, the O-E diphthong is represented as an O with an umlaut over the top, and the Hiller, Hiller means hell. Die Hille means hell in, in German, uh, interesting enough. And he goes by the name of Tau Stephanos, Gnostic bishop. I think this is an excellent summary, the best summary I've ever seen of Gnosticism. And I hope that he did what he proposed to do at the beginning, that he actually took the mythic ideas behind Gnosticism, the ideas that are expressed in the myths, and explained them in a way that you could understand what they mean. Now, I find this whole enterprise of Stephen Hiller in explaining Gnosticism by trying to distill it, as he says, from the mythology, I find it to be very, very similar to modernism also in that regard. Because as St. Pius X says in his encyclical on modernism, condemning the errors of the modernists, he says the modernist doctrines are scattered everywhere. It's very, very hard to draw them all together. They have to be all brought together and interpreted and expressed in a coherent way. This is what the man says about Gnosticism here. And this, what this man is doing with Gnosticism, that was what St. Pius X said he was proposing to do with modernism. It is a sickly. Try to draw it all together and understand what are they really getting at? How can we tell people what this really means?
You know, it's kind of when I, another thing that I find very interesting is that Gnosticism is there as a direct challenge to true Catholicism. It is always found in Catholicism its exact nemesis, right? And one of the greatest Satanists who ever lived was a man named Aleister Crowley. You ever hear of him? Okay. He was named the head in Britain of the Order of the Eastern Temple. Okay. The Order Ordo Templi Orientis, right? And this Ordo Templi Orientis was a satanic cultic group. Aleister Crowley proudly proclaimed himself the wickedest man alive, completely given over to Satanism. Many of our rock bands look at him as some kind of a great figure, a mentor for their own spirituality, right? Aleister Crowley composed a Gnostic mass in 1913 in Moscow. And there were two other redactions of the same mass that followed later on. He said that his Gnostic mass actually gave the full interpretation of the central mystery of Freemasonry. And this is the center of the ritual of the Gnostic Catholic Church. The Gnostic Catholic Church was established by a Frenchman about a hundred years ago in France. And when he was giving the account of how he left the Catholic faith to become a Gnostic and establish the Gnostic Catholic Church and become the first head of the Gnostic Catholic Church, this man, who might well have been an ex-priest, <laughs> said that he was inspired to do this, among other reasons, to enable women to take their rightful place of authority in the church. Again, the rise of feminism. We see some very interesting things going on in the Novus Ordo in the same way. When I read this text of this Gnostic mass of the Satanist Leicester Crowley, I was really taken aback at the offertory prayers of the Gnostic Mass, the Satanic Ritual, because the offertory prayers of the Gnostic, the Gnostic Mass bear an uncanny resemblance to the offertory prayers of the New Mass. I think so. you'll probably get a chance to see for yourself there. Tomorrow, I'll spend about three minutes talking about those offertory prayers and how they definitely tell you that the new Mass is not, is not a Mass. But anyway, I, I was very surprised to find that correspondence, or what seems to be a, be a correspondence between the offertory prayers of the new Mass and the offertory prayers of the Satanic Gnostic Mass of Elisha Crowley. You may disagree. I'd like to know if you do. Anyway, the bell is rung. We have benediction now.
I wanted to get into the question of Mormonism, which I can easily do tomorrow. Because yeah. I know you must be very weary, I'm sorry. But I was driving to this as kind of a consummation of what I was saying here. But allow me just to finish by saying this much. What I read to you about Gnosticism essentially is Mormonism. With a few variations, as Stephen Hiller says, there are variants, few variations. But this idea of the multiplicity of gods and the highest of the gods, the creator, the sense of creation, that's not really creation, God just arranging eternal matter, and the fact that we are gods, and we are gods embedded here in this, in this world for a reason. And we must return to our and claim our own personal godhead, our own personal godhood by the way we live in this world. This is all part of Gnosticism, essential parts of Gnosticism. In fact, let me just read for you the summation the summation of the central tenets of Gnosticism. And see, this is from the introduction to, introduction to the Gnostic Mass. And this is written by Tau Apurion, one of the Gnostic leaders. In comparing the diverse patterns of Gnostic tapestry, we note a few common threads. And these common threads are common throughout all the Gnostic systems a symbolic and practical syncretism, bringing all the religions together, a cosmology, a cosmogony in which matter is separated from spirit by a series of emanations or eons, with the cosmos originating in a mixture of spirit into matter, varying degrees of anti-cosmic sentiment, devaluation of the created world and a material existence expressed in either asceticism or libertinism, the doctrine that the human spirit is essentially divine, a system of redemption through mysticism and personal enlightenment, which is represented in a soteriology, that's a saviorism, of the redeemed redeemer, and an eschatology emphasizing the ultimate separation of the justified souls from matter and their return to pure spirit and thus pure deity. Well, when one examines the Mormon teaching, you find not only does Mormonism begin from the same principles as all the other Gnostic systems, but it ends with the same conclusions too. And that is man is God in the making. God is Man is man becoming God. That's what their religion is all about, to make men gods. In any case, uh, I can explain that a little further later on, but we have more important things to do, as in worshiping the true God.